0: Luke 14 has been called one of the most cultural, actually countercultural chapters in all the New Testament. And we live in a society today in which we're taught to look out for number one. And Luke 14 actually challenges that mindset by telling us that our goal should be to place others above ourselves. But the Bible even says that too much pride will destroy you. So if we fail to be aware of that issue of pride in our lives, it can become a a, a danger to our church. So it's important that we study what Jesus, the head of the church, has to say about humility and pride. Because what he says goes. And we have all kinds of attitudes, we have all kinds of opinions, and they're certainly valuable and they impact our programs and our procedures. But when it comes to what we do and why we do it, then we actually allow Jesus to dictate all of that. And the humility that we will show will make this place a spot where people will feel welcome, where they will feel warm, where they will feel loved, where they will feel received by the people. Look at James chapter 4 verse 10. Be humble in the Lord's presence and He will honor you. Now, that's not an easy thing to do, because in our society, everybody is juggling so that they can be in first place. If somebody else isn't promoting us, then we'll promote ourselves. I was reading about Theodore Roosevelt's funeral, and one of his kids actually said this, Daddy always wanted to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. He had to be the center of attention wherever He was. And being the center of attention is intoxicating. So we're working through this book of Luke this year. And we're presently in a series entitled, In Jesus Church. And in the text today, we're going to see how this is a place where the humble are praised. And Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees. And this is a group that's not really known for their humility. But we can learn some lessons from their negative example that will help us understand this characteristic just a little better. And the key in all of this is to take focus off ourselves and place it on others. So here are three expectations that will move us toward humility in our lives. First of all, we have to be willing and open to change. Flexibility is a sign of humility stubborn pride refuses to change, while flexibility expresses a willingness to swallow our pride and forget about what we want and think about what the other individuals around us really need. So we take the focus off ourselves, place it on them. Rigidness communicates, I'm comfortable, I'm secure, I like the way things are going in my life, my needs are being met. I want to keep things just the way they are. And people who are rigid refuse to get out of their comfort zone, while the humble person is someone who is willing to self-sacrifice. And they aren't interested in meeting their own needs, but they're thinking about the good of others. In Luke chapter 14, we see the example of the Pharisees. And they didn't want to change anything about the Sabbath day, which is their day of worship. So we're picking up in verse 1. One Sabbath, Jesus was having dinner in the home of an important Pharisee, and everyone was carefully watching Jesus. All of a sudden, a man with swollen legs stood up in front of him. Jesus turned and asked the Pharisees and the teachers of the law of Moses, Is it right to heal on the Sabbath? But they did not say a word. Jesus took hold of the man, that he healed him and sent him away. Afterwards, Jesus asked the people, if your son or ox falls into a well, wouldn't you pull him out right away, even on the Sabbath? And there was nothing they could say. Now this wasn't your normal, relaxing dinner with friends. This was where Jesus was in a situation where these Pharisees were watching everything he did, hoping to find him slip up in some way. And it's important for us to realize that their teaching said that it was forbidden to heal on the Sabbath. That was the teaching of the Pharisees, but that's nowhere to be found in Scripture. It was just a tradition that they had. So what they were saying here was, Jesus, you've basically got six other days of the week in which you can heal somebody. So why do you need to do it on the Sabbath day? Warren Mearsby said, These religious leaders set a trap with this handicapped man. They knew that if they put someone right in front of the Lord, that he'd be forced to release the person from his suffering. So they've certainly brought this guy into the midst, put him in front of Jesus, just to see if Jesus would heal him on their holy day or not. So they don't respond to this question, because they can't. They're too arrogant to admit that they might be incorrect. It takes humility in order to be flexible. Now, one area in which our church has shown a lot of flexibility here at HCC is in our worship style. Back in 2007, we made a conscious decision that we would reach out to the basically 25 to 40 year old age bracket in our community, and we would change the way we worshiped in order to reach that age category. And even today, 20% of the population of our immediate area would be between the ages of 20 to 29. That's by far the largest uh, population group. And then the second would be 30 to 39 year olds at 13.9%. So this is still the main area that we are targeting within our community. So we sing mostly contemporary songs, or the song after my message is going to be an older one, but done in a new way. And we do that because we want to reach out to people in Christ's name. We want to be contemporary for them. Isaac Watts was an English hymn writer and theologian who lived from 1674 until 1748, And he was complaining to his father because the songs that they were singing in church were boring. He said, they're old. They were written hundreds of years ago. So his father said, well, why don't you write some songs that are contemporary to our time? So he wrote 750 hymns. And many of those are still used by many of our churches today. And they were intended to be contemporary to 300 years ago. So maybe there is something new that we should be singing today. So you've shown flexibility in that area, because like Isaac Watts, you knew that music must be contemporary with our time. And we don't alter the message. The message is never changed, that's always the same, but the method in which we present it, the method in which we package it, is going to change. And the focus is on Christ and on His cross. The death comes when memories of the past supersede visions for the future. I told this story years ago, it's from John Maxwell's book, and he told about a couple of professors who conducted an experiment. They took four monkeys into a room, and in the middle of that room was this tall pole, and at the top of the pole was a bunch of bananas. And as soon as the men left the room, one of the monkeys scampered up the pole, and reached out to grab a banana. And as he did that, he was showered by ice cold water and just kind of squealed and went down the pole. And then each of the other four tried the same thing up the pole, reach out for the banana, and then this ice cold shower. And so each one of them tried it a few times until they finally gave up. Then the researchers took one of the original monkeys out of the room and replaced it with another. And that guy wasn't there for very long until he noticed the bananas at the top of that pole. And he started to climb the pole and all the other bananas, all the other monkeys, grabbed him and hauled him down because they didn't want him to get a nice cold shower. So he tried it a few times and each time they hauled him back down again. So finally he gave up. And then the scientists replaced the rest of the monkeys one at a time, and as each one came in, the others grabbed him and hauled him down. Until eventually the room was full of monkeys who had never tried to climb the pole, who had never been doused with ice cold water, yet none of them tried to climb that pole, and they never knew why. There are so many times in churches when the death toll is sounded by that phrase, like we've never done it that way before. There are so many church members and so many leaders who are afraid to climb that pole and try something new in their lives in ministry because they're being pulled down by others. In 1 Corinthians 9.22, Paul wrote, When I'm with people whose faith is weak, I live as they do to win them. I do everything I can to win everyone I possibly can. So the Apostle Paul was flexible. He did everything he could to win people to Christ. And we have to be flexible as well. And when we look at 1 Peter 5 verse 5, we see that we need humility also. All of you young people should obey your elders. In fact, everyone should be humble toward everyone else. The Scriptures say God opposes proud people, but He helps everyone who is humble. So there are two groups that had serious trouble with this concept. And the first group, of course, was the Pharisees. Like they didn't want anything to do with humbling themselves in any way whatsoever. Go back in Luke 14, verse 7. Jesus saw how the guests had tried to take the best seats. So he told them, When you are invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the best place. Someone more important may have been invited Then the one who invited you will come and say, uh, give your place to this other guest. You will be embarrassed and will have to sit in the worst place. When you are invited to be a guest, go and sit in the worst place. Then the one who invited you may come and say, my friend, take a better seat. You will then be honored in front of all the other guests. If you put yourself above others, you will be put down. But if you humble yourself, You will be honored. And there was one situation where I did that at a North American Christian convention. I kind of went to a seat in the corner and then was invited to come up to the president's table because I knew him. His name's Alan Dunbar. He lived on PEI for a number of years. And at this convention, my wife had convinced me to buy some new clothes. She said, they're going to be senior pastors of megachurches there, and you've got to fit in with them. So, I had this amazing pair of linen pants, this black golf shirt, but it was so hot in Phoenix. It's 104 degrees. I had on my shorts and a t shirt, and then I got invited to the president's table where the speaker was there. There were pastors of these mega churches, but they all had shorts on too, so that part worked out okay. So, we do that sometimes. We get invited to a bigger table. In Israel, the meal table played an important role in family and society. Like they were jockey before a meal to see who was going to be in what seats. They wanted to have the seat of influence. And that helped to add to their status. So Jesus is attacking their pride. He's attacking their arrogance and their seat selection. But he didn't stop there. He actually digs a little further and he gets into their hearts. Because... It's not just the Pharisees that have an issue with humility, but Jesus' own disciples as well. So back in Mark chapter 10, verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, will you do us a favor? And Jesus asked them what they wanted. And they answered, When you come into your glory, please let one of us sit at your right side and the other at your left. Jesus told them, You don't really know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the cup that I must soon drink from, or be baptized as I must be baptized? Yes, we are, James and John answered. Then Jesus replied, You certainly will drink from the cup I must drink, from which I must drink, and you will be baptized just as I must. But it isn't for me to say, Who will sit at my right side and at my left? That is for God to decide. When the other ten disciples heard this, they were angry with James and John. So here are the disciples. And they are arguing about who is going to have those seats of prominence on the right and left hand side of Jesus in heaven. And if we were to be honest, you know, there are times when we don't humble ourselves as well. Like I hear other pastors brag about the influential people that they performed weddings for. Or maybe when you're going out for lunch with the boss at work and there are a whole group of people in the office, that you jockey to try and get right next to the boss at that dinner table. Do you position yourself so you'll be really close or are you just content to be at the table? I have some hearing loss in my left ear now, so whenever I go to an event like that, I sit... The far left hand side, so everybody's to the right, and I can hear really well through that ear. But do you do that? Do you try to position yourself in the right spot? You check your ego at the door when you come into the church for worship on Sunday mornings, and when you get ready to leave this place, and go out into the world to be the salt of the earth, and to be the light of the world, you once again check your ego the only way people are going to see Jesus Christ in your life is if you have a humble spirit. And the Greek word humble actually means to make low. Matthew records some words of Jesus in chapter 18. But if you are as humble as this child, you are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So there he tells us, he wants us to have childlike humility. That is a prerequisite in order to be serving among God's people. John Ortberg said I'd like to be humble, but what if nobody notices? You know, maybe we feel that way ourselves too. And if we think we've arrived at humility, we've already blown it because pride has taken over and, and overconfidence. And the Christian life is full of tests that determine whether you are serious about being humble or not. The Bible says to repent and be baptized. And what's your response? Is it, well, I'm not going to get dumped in water, or is it, I'm going to do what God wants me to do? Around 20 years ago, we had a family here, and the woman in that relationship said to me one day, it was just after I baptized somebody. She said, there's no way you're going to get me in front of the church with all my clothes on and... Dump me in a tank of water. And the way she said it, my response was, well, you don't have to wear any clothes. It seemed like the clothes were the issue. I gave her some material to study about the topic, and the next week she came running down the aisle wanting to be baptized. In one week, it was amazing what God's Word did. The Bible says to bring the entire 10% into the storehouse. And what's your response? Oh, boy. Ask me for money again at the church, or is your response, "I'm going to do everything I can because God wants me to. I'm going to give generously back to Him because He has given everything to me." Or what's your response when people say, and you read this in the Bible, "A husband is to love his wife as much as Christ loved the church." But what's your response? Oh boy, I couldn't do that, God. It's just too much pressure. Or is it, Lord, help me to demonstrate love and compassion to my wife so that she will feel loved and cherished and needed and appreciated? And then the Bible says, In humility consider others better than yourself. Rebecca Pippert wrote the book, of the Salt Shaker, Into the World. And she told about a college student who had come to Christ through the campus ministry. And then that first Sunday after that, he went to this stuffy downtown church. He wanted to go to church somewhere. He walked in, he had jeans that had grips in them, he had a t-shirt on. He actually had flip-flops on and everybody else was in suits. And as he walked down that center aisle, like nobody was making any movement to allow him into one of the pews. So he walked right to the front and plumped down on the carpet and worshipped there. And a moment or two later, this older gentleman who had been around basically since the church had started, he, he stood up from the back and started to make his way down that middle aisle. And everybody was just kind of cringy because they were expecting. You know, that young fellow was going to get a tap on the shoulder and then this look, you know, you're not supposed to sit like that and you're not supposed to be dressed that way. But the old man came down to the front and then It was very hard for him to do it, but he actually got down on the floor and sat beside the young guy and worshipped with him there the rest of the service. And Pippert said there wasn't a dry eye in the building. But that one movement that that elderly gentleman made changed that congregation because they all of a sudden experienced humility. So I encourage you to be on the lookout for opportunities to be humble and to worship right alongside other people. Matter who they are. One other thing the scripture tells us is that we need to be inclusive. Now, when you hear that word, all kinds of thoughts go through your mind. Because in our society, inclusive means we accept everybody no matter how they live, no matter what type of sin they have in their lives. But inclusiveness, as Jesus is talking about it here, is encouraging us to accept people from different backgrounds, from different economic or social standings. And Jesus goes into detail in this passage to tell us how to include others. So the last three verses of Luke 14, he begins by listing actually some of the people that we sometimes leave out of our lives. Then Jesus said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner, your friends and family and relatives and rich neighbors. If you do, they will invite you in return and you will be paid back. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind. They cannot pay you back, but God will bless you and reward you when His people rise from death. We tend to lean more toward the exclusive side than we do the inclusive side, don't we? And Jesus is saying, you know, big deal. You can invite somebody who can quite easily invite you back to their home. Like Anybody can do that. But he wants us to ask people that can't return the favor. So his plan is that the people at the top of our invitation list aren't going to be the people that we're constantly spending time with. But they're going to be people that we don't spend time with. And we want to develop new relationships with them. So we want to move some people from the bottom of our list up to the top of our list. So when you're on your break at work, who do you hang out with? Is it the same person or two every time? It's because maybe they're also a Christian so you have something in common that way? Or maybe they understand you're a Christian and just don't say anything negative about you? Or do you try to build some bridges with some other people? Or you're at your child's sporting event. Do you always hang out with the same people? Or do you get out of your comfort zone and go talk to some of those parents that nobody else seems to be talking to and just look a little bit lonely and then develop a relationship with them? Or when you're with your neighbors, do you spend time with the ones you know are aware of what you believe and you are content with that? Or do you try to actually branch out a little bit sometimes? Many people are turned off by organized religion. And all they're going to see of Christianity is you. And they want community. They want to be a part of someone's life. They want to interact. And if they see Christ in you, if they see humility in you, they will hunger for that relationship. So just imagine what you could accomplish for the Lord if you could just build some of those bridges with the people I've just mentioned. Perhaps it's a person who has much less or much more than you. Maybe it's a person who's in a different age bracket than you are. Maybe it's a person that's of a different nationality. Or maybe it's someone who's struggling with physical or emotional disabilities or challenges. In 1937, Lou Gehrig, who was one of the greatest pro baseball players, was asked to go to a children's hospital in Chicago. And on his next visit there to play the White Sox, He went back to that hospital because there was one specific boy named Tim that he wanted to visit. Tim was 10 years of age and he had polio. And he was Garrick's biggest fan. But he didn't want to go through the therapy that was being suggested. Because he didn't think he'd ever walk again. He said, it's too much work and I'm just going to be disappointed anyway. But Lou really wanted to encourage the boy to take the therapy. As he said, I want you to get well. I want you to learn to walk again. So then Tim said, Lou, if you hit a home run for me today, then I'll take the therapy. So Gary said, I left that hospital with so much pressure and anxiety. I was apprehensive. I was nervous and I was thinking, what if I don't hit a home run today? I won't be able to deliver on this boy's request. Well, Lou Gehrig didn't hit a home run that night, he actually hit two home runs. And two years later, on July 4th, 1939, when he was dying from that dreaded muscular disease that bears his name, they celebrated Lou Gehrig Day at Yankee Stadium. And there were tens of thousands of people that had gathered to celebrate his life and his career. The governor was there, the mayor was there to pay their respects, And he was a hero to everyone. But just before they handed the microphone to Lou Gehrig, Tim came walking out of the dugout, he dropped his crutches, and then he walked to home plate and hugged Lou Gehrig around the waist. And it was in that setting that Gehrig offered these famous words. He said, Today I am the luckiest man on the face of the earth. see what happens when you take the focus off yourself, And put it on someone else that you wouldn't normally spend time with. It's amazing how God has a humble spirit. And you're able to also walk away with a blessing. It's not just the other person that experiences a blessing. But you will experience it as well. And that's because you've drawn closer to the Lord. You've imitated Christ. And the one who reached out to all the outcasts. The one who reached out to the needy. Because they were at the top of his list and not at the bottom. Look at what Jesus has done for you. He left his comfort zone in heaven. He took on the form of a human being and then came to live in this world. And he came for one purpose. It was to forgive you so that you could be free from the effect of your sin and you could enjoy the victory. some of you might feel as if God has actually been mad at you. And he's probably been displeased with the sin in your life. But he's offering you a promise today. He says, if you accept me into your life, then I will accept you just as you are. And as one person said, and I'm not going to leave you that way. I want to see you change. I want you to swallow your pride. I want you to humble yourself. I want you to repent of the sin in your life. I want you to accept me as your Lord and Savior and be baptized into me. Symbolizing the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And then he says, when you do that, you will be a new creation. Your sin no longer condemns you, because now you've got the Holy Spirit living within you. You have the grace of God back in your If you haven't made that decision, I encourage you to make that as we sing this song. Talk to me afterwards about it.